scripture reading today comes from Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold in you the heart for you all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in, my, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that you all, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so, I'm, so that you may prove what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here today. Um, today we're going to talk about joy. Um, the theme of our, our 2019, uh, the theme or focus of our, our church this year is love. From 1 John 4, we love because God first loved us. And today's topic um, may seem like a, uh, a, a uh, digression from that theme, but we will see as we uh, proceed perhaps whether uh, there is any kind of connection and what that connection might be. And the text I want to use today is basically Paul's letter to the Philippians that Brandon just read from. Philippians is, is a classic text on joy. In fact, there are 12 times in this short letter where uh, forms of the Greek word for joy appear either in our English translations, joy or rejoice, which is, you know, a, a verb form of that, um, or rejoice. Uh, those kinds of words appear, uh, some form of that word appears 12 times in this short letter. So it's obviously a point of emphasis with Paul, who's writing this letter to the church at Philippi in the first century. And we're going to take as our title this morning um, the phrase, with joy. Paul in, first, uh, in Philippians 1, verse 3 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He is praying with joy. And obviously this is a statement about Paul's prayer or his prayer life uh, more than his life in general, but it's very evident from this letter as, from, as well as from all the, uh, or many of the other letters that Paul wrote that we have in our, our Bibles and our New Testaments that Joy was something that characterized not only Paul's prayer life, but Paul's whole life. He lived his life with joy. He didn't just pray with joy. Uh, that was just uh, a smaller part of a bigger picture. Joy was something that characterized his e entire existence post-Damascus uh, Road when he met Jesus and then went on to be converted to Christ and became an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a life, Paul's life, that was lived with joy. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, is the idea of a joy-filled life. To have a life that is characterized by joy, we have to be people who um, think correctly about uh, three different things that are mentioned in this text, and they're really the three things that everything in our life consists of. Basically, how we think about ourselves, how we think about God, how we think about others. It is our perspective on those three things that pretty much form our lives. I mean, what else is there? I guess you could say the rest of the world, the, the, the sort of uh, non-animate world or something like that. 
but it's our relationship with God our, and, and how we think about Him, how we think about ourselves, and how we think about everything else, uh, uh, chiefly other people, that uh, basically is you know, our body of work. That's what constitutes a human life uh, on this planet. And, and Paul is going to reference each of those repeatedly in the, the book of Philippians. And I want to suggest to you that if we're going to be people who find joy, who exemplify joy, whose lives are characterized by joy, we need to think carefully about the role we ascribe to each of those three things. So I want to start then by talking about how we think about ourselves. What is your perspective, the role you ascribe to, to you, to yourself? So how we see ourselves. Um, there are numerous, numerous uh, references to, uh, for, by Paul to himself just in the opening statement of, of, of Philippians 1. Uh, after the greetings, he launches into the letter here in verse 3. And notice how many times just in this first couple of verses, his first sentence, he references himself. My, my, mine, my. You can trace this on through the letter. And I don't want to make too much of this. I just want to say that it, you're a big part of you, Right? What you think of you uh, and how you think about yourself, how much self-regard you have and what, what, that, what shape that self-regard takes goes a long way into explaining the kind of life you're going to live. And that's the case for Paul as well. So if our lives are characterized by joy, that is largely going to be a function of our perspective on self, how we see ourselves. Let me just start by saying that joy is not a matter of essentially, of getting myself in the right circumstances. Joy isn't in the Bible portrayed as a matter of the situation I'm in. Okay? Happiness might be. Uh, maybe in some form or fashion, contentment might be, but not in the deeper sense, biblically. The word the Bible's going to use for that deeper sense is something that actually transcends the setting or the circumstances of our lives, and that something is called joy. Paul's circumstances, think about the context in which he's writing or from which he's writing this letter. His circumstances are much less than ideal. Anybody remember what situation he's in? He's actually imprisoned. And he talks about that in Philippians chapter 1 verse 7. Uh, and yet he says, in spite of the imprisonment that he mentions in verse 7, over in the fourth chapter of this letter, I want you to consider his attitude, consider his outlook. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So this is an incredible outlook, an incredible attitude, considering that the man doesn't even have his own personal freedom. So joy I think we can safely say just inferring from that fact, the fact that he's writing from jail, writing from a position of being arrested, doesn't have his own freedom, can't come and go at liberty as all human beings like to do, and yet he still says that he is a person who is content and knows how to be content, has learned how to be content in any and every context, any and every circumstance. So joy is ultimately not about getting ourselves in the right situation. In fact, he says, in whatever situation. Right? I mean, he just says that. In any and every circumstance. So joy is less about what's around you and more about what's inside you. Right? He says, and to put it in his words, it's about possessing what he calls the secret. I've learned the secret. 
We'll talk more about what that secret is in a minute. But it enables him to face everything on the whole gamut of, of human experience. All the situations that you can think of from the worst to the best. I've learned how to face plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I, I can be a base, I can abound. Doesn't matter. I have the secret for contentment, for a deep abiding joy that transcends situations and circumstances. Moreover, joy doesn't ultimately come from, from greater personal achievement. And now I'm, I'm, I'm you know, as they say, gone, quit preaching and gone to meddling because I'm talking to Americans after all. We are, our, our, our national mythology is, you know, Horatio Alger, you, you pull yourself up by your bootstrap. Everybody thinks he's a self-made person, or she th she's a self-made person. Whether we are or not, however much my starting point was way ahead of yours, we in America like to think I did that. Maybe everybody does that, but that, that's a part of our national mythology. We assume everybody has a level playing field, history doesn't matter, right? It's all the same, and you just, it's all you, you did it. By your ingenuity, your hard work, your strong muscles, you know, your intelligence, your bright ideas, or whatever. Let me say to you, though, that in the Bible, joy doesn't ultimately derive from my or your personal achievement. Look what Paul says. Does anybody have a better resume than Paul? In fact, he talks about the resume that he sort of left behind when he met Jesus. He calls it, he didn't use the word resume or CV, he uses reasons for competence in the flesh, but it reads like bullet points in a resume. I myself, he writes in the third chapter, have reason for competence in the flesh also. If anybody else does, he says, I yet more, verse 4. What are his credentials? These may be the kind we use, but for a first century Jew who's a budding academic, he's, he's training to be a rabbi, he's moved down to Jerusalem to do that. That's quite an undertaking. Um, he's a Roman citizen, but what he really is after is this a pedigree in the world of, of Jewish academia. He says, I was, and just being a good, righteous, pious Jew, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Remember in, in Genesis, that was the covenant that God made with the, the people of, uh, of the descendants of Abraham, that they would be, the males would be circumcised, a sign of their consecration as a nation, as a people to Yahweh, to the Lord. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he says, this is the Torah, the Old Testament, the law of Moses. He says, I was a Pharisee, one of the strictest, most conservative sects within Judaism. As to zeal, he says, I persecuted the church because he sees the church of Jesus early on as, uh, you know, sort of an imposter on what real piety looks like. So he perse persecutes its adherents. As righteousness under the law, he says, by that measure, he says, I was blameless. So he, he checks off all the boxes. If Paul's sitting down to an interview for a first century job and being a good Jew or a good Jewish scholar to be, he, he's going to be able to compete really uh, robustly for that job. That's his resume. And you know what he says in the rest of, of, of Philippians 3 about this. That isn't what he ends up pursuing. He says, I started looking at that as much of rubbish because I, I met something and someone else that was so much more valuable to me, more precious. And so I just jumped the, the track and got on another path. Let me suggest to you, and I, I, I got this idea from a, a guy named David Brooks. I'm going to quote a, a book of his I've been reading later. But in an earlier writing, you might know David Brooks. He's been on various news. He's been a news commentator for a few years on various networks and things like that. 
Um, but David Brooks uh, says that sometimes we should think more in terms of, uh, less in terms of resume building and more in terms of eulogy building. You know, one day we're all going to die. And we don't know when that day is, but people are going to stand up probably at your funeral and say things about you. And there's not many people who are going to get out your resume from 25 years ago and go, whoa, they, they got this promotion. What they're going to talk about in your eulogy is a different kind of material, aren't they? Your relationships that you built. How you changed people's lives around you for good or didn't. Well, they're going to say you did even if you didn't. Funeral. <laughs> But everybody in there is going to know, I don't know that person, or yeah, and I could tell you 10 more things like that. They're not going to care about all that stuff that we build on our resumes. They are going to care about eulogies. So we ought to be building material for our eulogy, not our resume, David Brooks says. And I would just say I think that's a good point. And neither does joy come from material possessions. And honestly, for, you know, for most of us, I realize some of us like material things because we like the thing. It's a purer version of materialism, maybe. Still materialism, but it's pure. Um, I, I think my bookaholism is that. I don't think I, 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 I have an obsession with, you know, Amazon One Click is the most dangerous tool of the devil that's ever been. You're whoa, no, no, ah, too late. Um, I, don't, I don't like books because, uh, who would, that doesn't even make sense. Why would you, books don't help you socially. They hurt you socially. He's got a whole lot of books. Don't go out with him. You know, but books, it's kind of pure. So we, we, you know, we watch some Marie Kondo and, you know, there's a record now, a number of things. Uh, Y'all know Marie Kondo, right? Netflix thing, I think it's on Netflix. And she shows you how to slim down your, your possessions and become, live more simply. So now there's this run on all the goodwill industries around the nation. Uh, People are just offloading trucks of stuff, you know, from their house. We don't need that. She shows you how to go, you don't need that, you haven't worn it in three years, get rid of it. You don't need that, you haven't used it in three, get rid of it. And then, I was liking it. We're going to condo everything. Until she started talking about books. And I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> Hold up. The, what I'm talking about, though, is not the kind of purer love of something because you think it's a, you know, inherently interesting or beautiful or whatever. I'm talking about the way many Americans use material possessions, and they're sort of a scorecard for your achievements very conspicuous and outward it's not very pure at all you may not even want the thing or like the thing it may be like a bane of your existence after it starts breaking down but you got to have that marker right to show everybody else how well you've done to, to convince yourself you're doing well it's an achievement kind of performance-based sense of worth and that is very sinister and I think all of us on some level probably have have flirted with that or maybe dove in uh, headlong but joy doesn't ultimately come from material possessions. They don't deliver the kind of satisfaction. They don't offer what they promise. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, that we need to take care and be on our guard against all covetousness or materialism because life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. That's really not what you're about. You're not wired to get your, your gratification, your fulfillment, ultimately from the number of things you possess. That's a lie. It starts off as a lie. It's going against your basic nature. Life doesn't, isn't made of that. You can't just tally up the things you've acquired and go, look, I'm good. I don't have many things. I'm not good. That's a false measure that doesn't even comport with our nature. It's not what life is, he says. 
So that's not where joy comes from. In fact, when it comes to true, to finding true inner joy, and we're talking about self here, how we see self, the number one thing we can do with ourselves is to forget ourselves. To totally forget yourself. Lose yourself in something bigger than yourself. In this book I've been reading by David Brooks, it's a brand new book, um, he, he, there's a passage where he talks about the difference between happiness and joy. And I want to read that uh, here. It's, it's, the book's called The Second Mountain. He says, happiness involves a victory for the self. So he's talking about happiness now, and he's going to change to joy. Happiness involves a victory for the self, an, exp uh, an exp expansion of self. Happiness comes as we move toward our goals when things go our way. You get a big promotion. You graduate from college. Your team wins the Super Bowl. You have a delicious meal. Happiness often has to do with some success, some new ability, or some heightened sensual pleasure. Joy, on the other hand, tends to involve some transcendence of self. You're getting beyond yourself. It's when the skin barrier between you and some other person or entity fades away and you feel fused together with that other person. Joy is present when a mother and baby are gazing adoringly into each other's eyes, when a hiker is overwhelmed by beauty in the woods and feels at one with nature, when a gaggle of friends are dancing deliriously in unison, joy often involves self-forgetting. You lose yourself. You think a bunch of people dancing like idiots? If they're still performing, they're not, they're not in joy yet. They're worried. Do I look good? Should I be doing this? Is this ridiculous? Am I embarrassing people? Real dancing is David when the ark comes back, right? And his wife says, what are you doing? He doesn't care. He's not dancing before people. He's dancing to God, right? So it's this idea of losing yourself. You forget yourself. That's joy. We can help create happiness, he continues. You can do something to get that, but it's temporary. You are seized by joy. You can't do anything to get joy. It, it seizes you. We are pleased by happiness, but we're transformed by joy. When we experience joy, we often feel we have glimpsed into a deeper and truer layer of reality. A narcissist can be happy, but a narcissist can never be joyful because the surrender of self is the precise thing a narcissist cannot do. So you see the difference? And so if we're pursuing joy, we got to investigate this idea of, of being self-forgetful. Forgetting about ourselves. Not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself, but thinking uh, about yourself less. And that's a point Tim Keller often makes in some of his work that I think is a really important, he got that from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, but a really important point. Secondly, we need to think carefully about God and ask ourselves, what do we think of when we're thinking about God? And what does this have to do, what does our perspective on God and our relationship with Him have to do with developing joy in our lives so how do we see God let's talk about that for a few minutes and we need to do this because Paul is doing this in this epistle that talks so much about joy he references God and Christ so many times and he does it right out of the gate here look at all the references I won't read it again Brandon read this earlier but in Philippians 1 he mentions God and Christ and God and Christ and Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus over and over and over again clearly Having joy in your life, having a life characterized by joy, defined by joy, has a lot to do 
with how we relate to God. And the reason Paul can say that he holds this secret to contentment, remember a minute ago from Philippians 4, he knows how to, uh, to be without, he knows how to be with, he knows how to abound and how to abase, he knows how, all those things are, are because he has this secret to contentment in the face of any circumstance. And the reason he can say that is because he has Christ. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. What is that secret? The secret is him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him. I think one of the versions actually says Christ Jesus who strengthens me. He's obviously in the context talking about Christ Jesus. So this is his secret. And it's about God. It's not about him doing certain things except having the, the certain thing. And that is the God who can strengthen him in Christ. Paul over in chapter 4 of the same letter connects joy to the Lord in a very explicit way. When he says, rejoice, this is a verb form, you know, the imperative, he's commanding them, rejoice, have joy in the Lord. Again, I'll say, have joy, rejoice. But notice this, the source of that joy, the location of that joy, where it's found is in the Lord. Not in Jerusalem or in Rome. One I can, one I can't. Maybe happiness, but he can be in jail in Rome, and he's still in the Lord. And you can be in a lot of different circumstances. With work, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our church, in our country, there can be all kinds of conflicts and uncertainty around us. The question is, do we really have the Lord? Because that's where joy is located. Rejoice in the Lord. And notice this. When you're in the Lord and you're having that joy, this is something that can happen always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Doesn't matter where it is or when it is. Again, context, situation, independent. We can have joy in the Lord. Even in prison, Paul can say this. I thank my God. And I think it's important that he doesn't just say, I thank God, or I thank the God, or the divinity, or as people say nowadays, the universe. You notice that? The last few years, the universe is telling me, do you mean God? What, what do you mean the universe? Uh, something outside, at least they're talking about a transcendent. That's good, I guess. That's a start. It's beyond you. Um, but... The Bible uses the word God for God. I think my God, though, it's a personal connection, a personal relationship. This is a God that he has personally. And so this is the kind of relationship to, to know this God is still with you, no matter where you are, that can give you that joy, even in, in a, con a condition as negative as, as being in, in jail. So let's raise this question now. How does this God, who is the God, the God of the universe, the God who created everything, how does this God come to be my God? Because answering that question, how the God becomes my personal God, goes a long way to answering the question of what does God have to do with joy? How did this God come to be Paul's God, personally? How did God get in the Lord, as it were? And the answer to that is actually the central reason that God is the ultimate and unchanging source of joy 
that he is. So think with me a minute about the human path, the way the world thinks about joy and happiness and contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment and self-actualization and all these terms that we use to talk about getting, getting me where I need to be. The human way of thinking about that, the earthly, worldly way of thinking about this path to contentment, almost always depends on, on kind of relentless personal struggle, right? It's about you doing the right things and doing them early and doing them often and doing them right, doing them well. It's about your personal striving. At work, you're, you need to out-achieve everybody else because there's always somebody nipping at your heels. You've got to out-achieve the others. Um, in, in social situations, I've, I've got to constantly maintain my, my reputation. I, I've got to carefully maintain the approval of my peers. And it's, it's a, you know, that, that never sleeps, right? If I wear the wrong thing to high school, one time, <laughs> gone. You know, something came out on the Internet. There's a new trend. It, something's trending. It trended five minutes. This trended seven minutes. You know, it, it, it's just, come on. I mean, you cannot sleep, right? Yeah. You used a word that, that was in style five years ago, you know? Somebody say word up right now from the 90s for me, <laughs> just to make my point. Um, or amen, go way back, right? Go, go, let's be biblical, get all biblical about it. Um, so anyway, it doesn't matter what it is, physical health, right? You got to go sweat at the gym all the time. You can't eat, you know, the whole pint of Ben and Jerry's at one setting, which is a, one of the most unjust things in the world. But you, you just can't do that. And, and no matter how, even if you mind your P's and Q's health-wise, and, and you go work out all the time, and you're, you know, you're doing everything you're supposed to do, your body's still going to fail you. That won't work forever. And I know a lot of young folks think, look at the old people's physiques. What, I'm going I'm to be more dedicated when I get there. Just wait. It's not, that's not what it is. Uh, it's, it, you're deal, dealing with uh, biology here, mostly. Anyway, it, so you, you, you've got to mind your P's and Q's all the time. Always be on your guard. And morally and ethically, there's a spiritual version of this too. If I want to be a good person, guess what? It's on me, according to the world's way of thinking, to always make the right choices, right? I've got to make the right moral choices and the right ethical choices. That's on me. And so for the world's pursuit of happiness, everything depends on what we might call performance. You have to perform. I have to perform well all the time. That's the basis of, of, of worldly contentment, its approach to you know, happiness and so on. Let me suggest that those bases for our well-being, for our contentment, are, are transitory. They, they all derive from things that are highly subject to change, that are unreliable. Maybe not always, but over time, they're going to prove very unreliable. No matter how many hours you spend at the gym, your body is going to give out on you. Whatever your professional accomplishments today, guess what? The industry is going to move on. That's never not happened. It's just happening now at warp speed. You're popular right now? Well, that's fleeting. Morally and ethically, anybody here always do the right thing every single moment of every single day? You know, a lot of times we're talking here about what we're doing in church. 
And that, that's important, but folks, we got a lot of bigger fish to fry in terms of biblical waiting than that. <laughs> if we get one thing wrong, you're already getting a whole lot of things wrong. Everybody, right? I am. Were you a good Samaritan every moment of every day last week? That's the criterion for having eternal life, according to Jesus. So we're, no, none of us are spiritually, morally, ethically performing the right way all the time. So it doesn't matter whether you're talking business, your, your, your physique, your you know, spiritual standing before God, performance is not a solid basis for joy. But Paul's basis is solid because his is based on God. And the God has become his God. And the basis of this relationship with God is not ultimately Paul's performance. It's God's love for Paul. That's the whole essence of the gospel. That's why the, good, the news is good and not bad. If it's just the same old, you know, transactional basis and you've got to bring your part and it's two people sitting down at a table... You bring this and I bring that. And a lot of people try to make Christianity that. If that's what it is, that's bad news. Because you will fail. You may not think you will. Maybe you got some Phariseeism in there. But you, you are fa humans, fa that's the whole premise the gospel is based on. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how the Sermon on the Mount starts. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where the gospel starts. It's assuming that. That's the axiom upon which the whole thing's built. So it's not about performance, it's about God's love for Paul. And he knows that. And he knows that God is the one who launched this relationship with him in the first place. God is the initiator. Paul is the receiver. How do I get in the Lord? Paul says in Philippians 3, he goes, I suffered the law. Remember that resume we were talking about? He said, I gave that all up. I changed my path. I was climbing this mountain. I said, nope, I'm going to start climbing this mountain. Walking down this road, nope, now I'm going to go down this road. He suffered the loss of all those old things and count them, counts them as rubbish in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him. Philippians 3.9 says, notice this in red, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law because I've kept everything, I've performed well. That's not the basis of it. I lose if that's the basis. Remember what he says in Romans 7? The good that I would do, I don't do. It's like there's this war going on inside of me. And he speaks of all that in the present tense. Paul's still dealing with that as an apostle. Dare say we all are dealing with that as non-apostles. But look, it's not about the righteousness of my own that comes from my law-keeping. That's not the basis of my relationship with God. Instead, he says, it is that which comes through faith in Christ. My trust, my belief, my grabbing hold of what Christ did the work he finished on the cross for me. He led. He initiated. And my job is to receive it. And that is very uh, hopeful, is it not? Another way to put this is the way Paul puts it over in chapter 3, verse 12. He goes, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Look at this. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's square one. Or as the NIV puts it, and I think, uh, some of the, uh, I think maybe the Old American Standard and New American Standard, something like this, because Christ Jesus, I'm trying to lay hold of that for which or of which Christ laid hold of me. So the, the, he, he grabbed me first, right? He, Paul's headed down to persecute people, and Jesus grabs hold of him. 
And that's what he's saying. And if we get that order backwards, then we're never going to have joy. God initiates. The whole thing is based on his love for us. And all right, very briefly, the last one here. It also, having a joy-filled life not only has to do with how we see ourselves and how we see God, it has a lot to do with how we see others. This whole letter begins with Paul's gratitude for other people, namely the Philippian readers of this letter. There's lots of references here. You, you all, you, you all, you all, you, you, you all, here and throughout the letter of, to other people. And the reason for Paul's joy is not only that God has laid hold of him in Christ, but that he has all these other people that he loves who are his partners in the gospel. And that's the way he talks about it over and over again in Philippians. Philippians 1, 4. He says, I'm making my prayer with joy because of your, Philippian Christians, your partnership with me in the gospel. That's a central idea. And it's a very noticeable thing about the letter to the Philippians. How much Paul's frame of reference is shaped by this collective cause that he shares with these other Christians. He doesn't see himself involved in a solo venture. He talks over and over again about their sharing with him in his struggles. They're sharing with him. They're partnering with him in the defense of the gospel and the spread of the gospel. How they early on had funded him, you know, fellowship with him in a financial way to spread the gospel. And they're sending people back and forth to comfort each other and to support each other. It's a partnership in the gospel. This is a collective, communal thing, not an individualistic thing. One example would be this one, Philippians 1, 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Partakers with Paul of grace. Grace wasn't just something Paul stood on in his relationship with God. This is something that isn't just about him as an individual and him and God vertically. It's a horizontal thing. There's a partnership with all the other people who are now defined and characterized by the grace of Jesus Christ. So it appears, folks... That joy and community go hand in hand for Paul and for us. If we're going to be people of real joy, deep abiding joy that can transcend context and situation, however negative they are, then we have got to lean into one another. You hear me? There's no just me and God solo. There's a time for that. You can go off into the mountains of Caesarea Philippi, as it were, occasionally. Jesus did it occasionally. The fact that Jesus did that three or four times doesn't negate the other 947 times he's among people. Almost all the time. Right? So that's for a recharge. We, we cannot live the Christian life outside a community. It just, it, it's not that way in the New Testament. That's why we assemble together. That's why we do our community groups. We're trying to get to know one another. That's why we have congregational meetings. And Bible says we can hear each other's ideas about the Bible. I may be missing something. You point something out to me that helps me. You encourage me when I'm you know, flagging behind spiritually and so on. And Paul it talks all through this letter that it's so much about joy, about partnership, about community. Here's the problem, or one problem. In our culture, especially over the last six or seven decades, We've come to think of happiness, of fulfillment, in individualistic terms. So we have this idea, if we just could remove all the regulations and the constraints, then individuals will be free to find their own happiness. 
Who can tell anybody else what their happiness is? You'll be free to do your thing. I'll be free to do We just need to get the restraints and the constraints moved, removed. That's a very common idea in American culture over the last, you know, it's been there since 1776 in some ways, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but it's really ramped up since the middle part of the 20th century. And a whole lot of books and commentators, uh, you know, social scientists, people like that, who, who, who've written whole works on this. And there's a right-wing version and a left-wing version, in case you're thinking, yeah, those liberals, or yeah, those conservatives. <clears throat> it's all of you. It's all of us. It's, it's in the water we drink. We are the most hyper-individualistic culture that has ever been on the planet. And Western Europe would be right there with us. So the right-wing and left-wing, the right-wing version would say something, yeah, like get rid of the economic regulation and, and we could be happy. They'd just stop taxing us and the government would get out of the market, right? Then we could be free to pursue our happiness. It's still an individualistic thing. In fact, the government shouldn't be telling me how to do this, that, and the other. That's the, that's the conservative version, the, right, the right-wing version. But there's a left-wing version as well. They may be okay with, uh, you know, the... the the uh, governmental regulations and that kind of thing and redistribution of wealth and that kind of, but boy, better remove the social cultural constraints because the, the left-wing version wants freedom individually to do what it wants in terms of self-expression or identity or what, what I think I should experience. Who are you to tell me that? You see how those are kind of both the same thing in some ways? They're two manifestations of the same idea that the individual has within him or her some innate ability to be good and to self-actualize, and the real bugabear we got to remove are constraints. We're assuming the individual is the answer. That happiness can be had by individual acquisition. And the problem with both of these is that joy doesn't come from self-actualization alone. Joy comes from community. You are wired as a social creature. We've sown the wind of individualism, and now we're reaping the whirlwind of social isolation and fragmentation all over us. We're eaten up with it as a culture, as a nation. Watch the news. Listen to the statistics. Only 8% of Americans report having important conversations with a neighbor in a given year. 8%. Everybody else is going, and then we've got these things, right? to connect, right? I tell you, my mom and dad know tons more about connecting, and they don't know how to work these things. I mean, my dad has one. We don't really know why. It's, he, he doesn't answer it. My mom will call Larry Lane or somebody and say, hey, is Harold there? Can you hand Something like that. But they connect. People, I'm speaking in generalities here. There's exceptions, but Robert Dawson, Connected with us, never met a stranger. Larry Lane, Harold Hamp, they don't meet a stranger. They can connect. We are increasingly going inside ourselves. And it's not just millennials, baby boomers. We're doing it too. It may just be me, and maybe this, I know this is anecdotal, but I'm really getting the distinct impression when I run into people out in, the, in public, you know, at a driving or at a supermarket or whatever, say, excuse me, or hey, how are you? I'm getting more and more of this... From people my age, I don't understand that. And um, anyway, that's probably not true. That's probably just me imagining it. Working on a sermon, you start imagining everything is what your sermon's about, right? 
But more, more evidence here. 99, uh, since 1999, since 1999 in the U.S., the U.S. suicide rate has risen by 30%. 30%. Opioids kill another 72,000 Americans a year. And this one is really depressing to me. In 2018, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, you know, in Atlanta, announced that the, the lifespan of the average American had declined for the third consecutive year. That almost never happens in developed nations with roaring economies, and that's, it almost never happens. You go the other way, you're adding a month a year. You know, that lifespan is a lot longer here than it was, you know, 100 years ago. Three-year span, 2015 to 2018, the lifespan in America actually declined. It's the first time that's happened in a three-year consecutive span since 1915 to 1918, which is when we were coming out of World War I and the flu pandemic killed nearly a million people. What's going on? Here's what social scientists say is going on. Researchers attribute this shortened lifespan to increase in the so-called deaths of despair. Suicide, drug overdoses, liver problems from substance abuse, and so on. That explains almost all those statistics. One more quote from Brooks. Many researchers have thoroughly recorded the fragmentation of our social fabric. The suicide epidemic is one manifestation of this isolation. The shortened life expectancy is another, the so-called deaths of despair. The contagion of mass shootings, left out an S there, are a manifestation as well. Whenever there's a shooting, there's always a lonely man who fell through the cracks of society, who lived a life of solitary disappointment, and who one day decided to make a blood-drenched leap from insignificance to infamy. The rising levels of depression and mental health issues are yet another manifestation. The foundational layer of American society, the network of relationships and commitments and trusts, trust that the state and the market and everything else relies upon is failing and the results are as bloody as any war. Maybe it's time we began to see this as a war, he writes. On the one side are those forces that sow division, discord, and isolation. On the other side are all those forces in society that nurture attachment, connection, and solidarity. It's as if we're witnessing this vast showdown between the social rippers and the social weavers. And here's the hard part of the war. It's not between one group of good people and another group of bad people. The war runs down the middle of every heart. Most of us are part of the problem we complain about. Paul found his joy not in his own personal accomplishments, not in some isolated quest, finding himself, but in a community built around the Lord, Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters he writes, because he has a community of brothers and sisters. You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my joy, hear that? They're his joy. <clears throat> he encourages them all to stand firm in the Lord that has brought them together. Can we distill any single central principle in all this that leads to joy? Is there a common denominator running through each of these points? our perspective on others, our perspective on ourselves, our perspective on God? I think the answer is yes. Yes, there is a common denominator. Joy is linked to living in a state of self-forgetfulness. It's almost the opposite of what we've been told. You know you. You're solid. You just need freedom to pursue happiness as you define it. 
The problem is we don't know what we're doing, folks. We're called human beings. We're sinners. That's where the Bible starts. The human heart is sick, desperately wicked. Who can know it, Jeremiah asked. Are you the first person who goes, I, I, I know myself? No. Come on. You going to argue with God? Self-forgetfulness. In Philippians, Paul's joy is bound up in his participation with other people. He can forget about himself because his own needs, for now and for eternity, are being taken care of by a loving God who supplies them according to the riches of the glory in Christ. He says, and may God, my God, will supply your needs, every need of yours, according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God's meeting your needs. You're full, not empty. And that's why we can have joy. This focus and preoccupation on those outside ourselves, whether it's God or other people in our church or outside in our community, that's what the Bible calls love, isn't it? Love is basically an other orientation. Other people, other agendas, other interests matter more than me. That's love. Basically. And boy, it's all over the Bible. God is love. We love because God first loved us. So it turns out, joy, if it's self-forgetfulness, is very related to love. Maybe that's why in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, what are the two things listed, the first two traits of the fruit of the Spirit? Anybody? Love and joy. Accidental? Probably not. You don't have joy if you're thinking about yourself all the time. And let's be real. We think about ourselves all the time. Come on, just be honest. We're subtle about it. We're sophisticated about it. But that, that's what we're doing most of the time. Just sitting in a room wondering, should I be right now? Be here right now? Am I using my time best? Is this in, in advancing my reputation? Uh, what did they think of me what they th in that, that conversation? Did I, was I sound stupid? You, you know what I'm talking about? That is so enslaving. Wouldn't you like to be free from all that? Just like I'm just free. I'm, I'm taken care of by God. I don't have to worry about that. I can be real with you. We could say, in fact, that joy is a love meter. I'll leave you with this. Maybe strange illustration. So, if love and joy are so connected, then joy is a kind of barometer of how much love, how much selflessness, how much self-forgetfulness we're operating with. So, if I'm not joyful, you can make a decent biblical case that love isn't really characterizing me. And if I am really, if you, find, if you come across a really joy-filled person, they just exude joy regardless of the situation, Odds are very high. They know a lot about love. They probably know my God. He's probably their God. If joy is absent from my life, how much love could there be in my life? If I walk around in a constant cloud of cynicism rather than joy, if I live in a constant state of fear and anxiety rather than joy, if I'm typically irritable, irascible, I can be counted on, you know, getting a good row, just thin skin, re ready to go, probably not too full of joy or love. 
And if I'm not full of joy, then I'm probably not resting in the love of God. So I, I, I don't have this down. <laughs> this is not me talking down to you. Get them up here where I am. We need together to walk forward into this, uh, making our God, well, our God, and, and really being defined and living out of the fullness that God's initiating and finishing love for us ha has given us. Amen? All right, appreciate it. Okay, we're going to sing this song, Salvation Belongs to Our God. I appreciate you being here today. If there's anybody here that we can help in any way grow closer to the Lord, you can let us know your needs, and we'll do all we can to help by coming to one of these inner circle chairs while together we all stand and sing together.